Okay, everyone, welcome to the Earthquake Science Center seminar for uh, January 4th, 2023. Happy New Year and welcome back from uh, the holidays and a break. We haven't had a seminar in two or three weeks. Um, everyone, remember to turn off your cameras and your microphones. And um, just a couple announcements here. We still have time to contribute to the combine, combined federal campaign. So that's an opportunity to give to your favorite charity, and that's open through January 14th. Um, another one is at the Northern California Hazards Earthquake Hazards Workshop for 2023 is coming up on January 31st to February 2nd, and it's a virtual meeting. And so registration is open for that, and we're going to put the link for the registration in the chat here. And then uh, SSA abstracts are due on January 11th. So if you have something you want to submit, Make sure you get it into Suzanne and Shane in time for the approval. And with that, I'm going to pass it to Alan to introduce today's speaker. Okay, well, uh, good morning and Happy New Year, everyone. Um, up front, I'd like to thank Evan and Shauna for their very important efforts in facilitating learning and discourse through the Earthquake Science Center's weekly seminars. Uh, I feel like you know we need to acknowledge their work as we move forward to the new year and what they've done uh, since their tenure. Um, for today, I am delighted to host and introduce tenure track assistant professor Mohammed Hala from UC Berkeley's civil and environmental engineering department. I'm also privileged to be acquainted with Mohammed since mesmerized by his charisma and intellect as he managed to convince me to dig pulse holes for his Garner Valley experiment in October of 2019. Now that was a busy year. Uh, and this is also after a week of comparable field work, my own field work at nearby Pinion Flats. I can see that he's smiling or either he's smirking. Um, uh, I am at least twice his age and I found it quite strenuous to keep up physically with him and his crew uh, from University of Texas at Austin. Mohammed attained his PhD just last year and already have published at least half a dozen uh, important papers on site characterization and very importantly, coupled with site response, which he will no doubt showcase today. Lastly, although today's seminar is completely virtual, I recommend that our center foster collaborative relationships with Mohammed as he embarks on a very promising career of advancing earthquake science. Thank you. Thank you, Alan, so much. And thank you, everyone. Thank you, Evan. Thank you, Shannon, for organizing this. It's really exciting to be here with you all, albeit virtually, hopefully in person sometime soon. So I'll introduce myself more. I see a lot of new people around, but I'll introduce myself more in a minute. My presentation today will focus on some of the research that I've been involved with over the past few years which has really broadened our understanding of how large is the spatial area influencing seismic site response. So everyone is familiar with seismic side effects, which are the influence of subsurface geomaterials on the earthquake frequency content, duration and intensity. And the classic example of why side effects are important comes from the 1985 Mexico City earthquake. Although Mexico City was more than 400 kilometers away from the epicenter, there was significant structural damage and loss of life in Mexico City due to seismic side effects. 
When trying to predict seismic side effects, the literature has focused on the importance of vertically characterizing the subsurface geomaterials, such as a 1D shear wave velocity profile or other proxies such as VS30, the depth to a 1 or 2.5 kilometers per second, VS horizon, and so on. All of these vertically characterize the subsurface geomaterials. And I would say we have a relatively good understanding of the vertical depth that influences seismic side effects. However, laterally characterizing the subsurface geomaterials has generally been either overlooked or oversimplified, and little is known about the spatial area that influences seismic site response. As such, my research vision has been enabling multidimensional seismic site response using site-specific but also larger-scale three-dimensional subsurface models so that we can better understand the complex of seismic side effects. Before I dig deeper into my presentation, I said I'll introduce myself. So in terms of my academic background, I speak geo. I graduated with my bachelor's back at home in Lebanon from the American University of Beirut. And while pursuing my undergraduate studies, I actually came to the US for one semester as an exchange student at the University of New Mexico and another semester doing research at the University of Illinois. And I worked on the NGA East project at that time. And then I joined the University of Texas for my graduate education. I got my master's in geotech as well as my PhD. And then another master's in statistics and data science. That was not part of the plan, but given the nature and the focus of my research on quantifying and modeling uncertainty in subsurface geomaterials, I was motivated to pursue that master's, which has been a great asset to my research and my work. More recently, I joined UC Berkeley just a few days ago, so this is kind of my inaugural event within that new role. In terms of my research background, the focus of my research has been on data science and earthquake engineering and where these two fields intersect. That includes one-dimensional, two-dimensional, and three-dimensional subsurface imaging using stress wave methods, and combining these methods with geostatistics and data analytics to build these large-scale subsurface three-dimensional models, but then implementing these frameworks in numerical modeling for earthquake and applications. And I'll get to cover parts of all of these um, research efforts that I've done in this presentation. In terms of today's presentation, I will focus on three main parts. First, I'll share my perspective on whether we can accurately predict side response, and then I'll introduce the case study side that I'll be focusing on, which is Treasure Island. Then I'll talk about an approach that I developed, which is the H over V statistical approach, which has been an instrumental approach for us to understand the influence of complex subsurface conditions, and particularly how large the spatial area that influences seismic site response is. Then I'll share insights from implementing this approach in numerical analyses at the Treasure Island Downhole Array. So, can we accurately predict site response? The real world is complex and might look something like this illustration, but currently the state of practice relies on characterizing the subsurface at a single location, if any, and then idealizing the subsurface as shown to the right. This is the current state of the practice, and then using these idealized models in engineering applications. However, 
our engineering systems, our infrastructure exist in the real world. And thus, an important question is, how do these subsurface idealizations influence the accuracy of the predicted response? And it's important just to recognize the complexity of the problem, starting from the source through the path and then ending with the site. And whether these effects can be isolated is a whole separate discussion. But in terms of my presentation today, I'm only going to be focusing on the site component. So assume we have an input motion at the bedrock level and then vertically propagating it through the near surface geomaterials and understanding the influence of the near surface geomaterials on the site response. So back to the question, can we accurately predict site response? To answer this question, researchers have installed sensors at the ground surface and at the bedrock to record earthquake ground motions and to better understand the influence of subsurface geomaterials on the earthquake shaking. And these sites where we have a pair of a downholer and a surface sensor are known as downhole arrays or borehole arrays or vertical arrays, and they exist around the world, such as in California, Japan, and elsewhere globally. So these Boral arrays provide us with an empirical observation of site effects. And then by using idealized subsurface models, we can make a forward prediction and get a theoretical prediction of site effects and compare these two to answer the question whether we can accurately predict site response. And more specifically, how do these subsurface idealizations influence the accuracy of the predicted response? So I synthesize results from five research studies that investigated this question at more than 600 downhill array sites. And the results are shown here to the right. So each circle corresponds to one of the five studies and the circle sizes are proportional to the number of sites investigated in each of these five studies. And the studies are shown in terms of whether the site was poorly modeled or well modeled using idealized subsurface. So it's evident from this comparison that at nearly half of the sites, we fail to accurately match the recorded ground motions and the observed site response, presumably due to the idealized subsurface conditions. This work has been summarized in one of our recent articles entitled Comparison of State-of-the-Art Approaches Used to Account for Spatial Variability in One-Dimensional Ground Response Analysis. And in this article, we argue that collectively these studies challenge the wide applicability of surface idealizations. So if we know that subsurface idealizations are one of the contributing factors to our inability to accurately predict site response. Can we reverse this current state of practice? And can we integrate data analytics and our physics-based knowledge to build more realistic subsurface models and achieve the vision that I started my presentation with, and that is enabling multidimensional site response using site-specific large-scale 3D subsurface models? So in terms of my presentation today, I will discuss these efforts, particularly at the Treasure Island, a downhill array site. And I'll first go through a brief timeline of the history of the site from it was constructed to when the downhill array was installed. And then the more recent efforts that I've been involved in, starting with an extensive subsurface imaging that was done at Treasure Island in 2019, 
And then the hypothesis that we formulated on the spatial area influencing site response from the results of the subsurface imaging, then later on developing the H over V statistical approach to test these hypotheses, and finally the numerical analysis that we've been doing at Treasure Island to actually test our hypothesis regarding the spatial area that influences site response. So Treasure Island is located here in the Bay Area. It's kind of annoying now that I'm living in the Bay Area. Whenever I look outside my window, I can see parts of Treasure Island and I'm reminded of my research, <laughs> but it's okay. Treasure Island is an artificial island that was constructed back in the late 1930s by dredging hydraulic fill northwest of a natural rock outcrop island, which is Yerba Buena Island. So this is Yerba Buena Island, and this is an image as Treasure Island was being constructed in the late 1930s. And this is an image after the island was constructed. So this is a natural rock outcropping island, and this is an artificial island. Both islands were shaken by the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989, and these are surface accelerations at Yerba Buena Island and at Treasure Island at the surface, approximately two kilometers apart. And you can see clear difference due to side effects, although these are only two kilometers apart. After, I want to emphasize something here. It was clear maybe from the previous image, but Treasure Island is just entirely flat like a pancake. And then Yerba Buena Island has these steep slopes that rise to more than 100 meters in elevation above the sea level. So we expect that because rock is outcropping on Yerba Buena Island, that it's actually sloping upward here and bedrock is shallower in this area until it ultimately outcrops on Yerba Buena Island. After the Loma Prieta earthquake, a full downhill array was installed. So previously there was only a surface sensor, but in 1993 sensors at multiple depths were installed to provide recordings at these different depths, including one that's 120 meters below the ground surface into the sandstone and the shale in that area. Recently, in 2019, we performed extensive surface wave testing covering the entirety of Treasure Island. And in this map, every marker location is where we put a sensor, a three component broadband seismometer. Some of these were part of array measurements to record surface waves and develop a dispersion curve and invert for a sure wave velocity profile, such as the circles over here. But these science scores, these were part of single stations rather than an array that were used to record ambient noise and calculate an H over V curve and then estimate the fundamental tidal frequency and its distribution, its spatial distribution across the entirety of Treasure Island. So if we calculate the H over V curve at each measurement location and then estimate the fundamental tidal frequency, this is what a spatial distribution of the fundamental side frequency across Treasure Island looks like. And you can see across most of the island, the values are fairly uniform, implying minimal spatial variability, except for this area that is closer to Yerba Buena Island, which has a higher fundamental side frequency, which is consistent with stiffer conditions and shallower bedrock as previously expected. So, 
If you use the surface recording from actual earthquakes and that at the bedrock, we can estimate an empirical observation of the side effects by taking the Fourier transform of the surface and dividing it by that of bedrock to get an empirical transfer function as shown here in black. And this range is just plus minus one standard deviation. And then if we use a single measured shear wave velocity profile as currently done in practice to idealize the subsurface conditions, we can estimate a theoretical transfer function as shown in green over here. And if you look at these two and compare them, one can easily say that we're doing a great job of matching the fundamental mode and also the higher modes. So this is rarely happens in many sites, but this is a great prediction. And one can easily say that this site is kind of the poster child, the perfect example of a 1D site response analysis. But looking more closely, it's evident that we are overestimating the amplitudes and underestimating the widths, particularly at the fundamental mode. Overprediction is okay, but underprediction implies that we're being unconservative in our estimation. So we're underestimating the side response. Particularly here, if you look closer, we have this secondary amplification peak near the fundamental mode, which we're not capturing by the theoretical transfer function shown in green by our prediction. Interestingly, if we look back at the map of the fundamental site frequency and we look again at these higher F0 measurements, their average value almost matches exactly with the frequency at which this secondary peak occurs. Although this empirical transfer function again is based on recordings at the downhill array here more than one kilometer away. So we're capturing the fundamental side frequency from H over V, which is approximately 0.75 Hertz through this peak. But we're also seeing another peak that matches these measurements that are more than one kilometer away. And we're not capturing that in the 1D theoretical transfer function, which is based on a single VS profile also measured at the downhole array. So we asked ourselves, is it possible that the subsurface conditions nearly one kilometer away are influencing the site response and the recorded ground motions at the downhill array? Although again, Treasure Island is considered to be a simple one-dimensional site. So that brings me to the second part of my presentation, and that is the H over V geostatistical approach. Based on the evidence that we saw earlier when comparing the empirical transfer function to estimates of the fundamental side frequency from H over V measurements, we asked ourselves, well, can we develop a practical approach in which we can use the fundamental side frequency estimates from H over V to develop a practical 3D VS model over the entirety of Treasure Island and further test our hypothesis, and that is the H over V to statistical approach, which I'm going to explain in the next few slides, and then I'll show its implementation at Treasure Island. So what I'm showing here is the final output of the H over V to statistical approach. It is a three-dimensional shear wave velocity model. More specifically, we call it a pseudo 3D VS model, because if you look more closely, 
It's a stack of many 1D columns at the respective spatial locations that are put together to form a three-dimensional model. So this is the final output. I'm going to walk back through the steps of this approach. If you look at each column separately, we can calculate for each 1D column, or in this case 1D VS profile, a fundamental side frequency, and thus we can plot a uniform map of the fundamental side frequency across this hypothetical site. And let's say we can measure this map, but in reality, we cannot perform continuous spatial measurements, but rather due to budget and access limitation, we often end up with spatially distributed discontinuous measurements as shown here. So this is where the H over V statistical approach starts. We first conduct these spatially distributed H over V measurements at certain locations, and then we use geostatistics and data science to estimate a uniform map of the fundamental side frequency from these measurements. And lastly, we use this map along with a single measured shear wave velocity profile down to bedrock, and we modify or scale the single VS profile to match the fundamental side frequency of every cell in our grid and get a new VS profile for that cell. And thus, when these VS profiles are put together at the respective spatial location, we get a three-dimensional shear wave velocity model, which then we can use to perform site response analyses. So next, I'm going to talk a little bit more about each of these three steps of this approach. So first, we conduct our H over V measurements. We use a three-component broadband seismometer to record the ambient noise in three directions, north, south, east, west, and vertical in the time domain. And then we take the Fourier transform to get the Fourier amplitude spectra of both horizontal components and the vertical component. And then by dividing the horizontal by the vertical, we get an H over V curve. And this, this curve exhibits a well-defined peak. Then the peak at which this frequency occurs is an estimate of the fundamental side frequency, which in turn can be approximated as the average shear wave velocity divided by four times the thickness of the soil. And the H over V method is really attracting much more interest due to its ability to estimate the fundamental side frequency at several sites with specific subsurface conditions. And this is an example of many sites around the world that we have performed. However, the HRV method will provide you with a single measurement at a single location rather than a uniform map. So how can we estimate a uniform fundamental side frequency map from these individual measurements? So in the second step, we're going to use geostatistical creaking, which is a spatial estimation technique to uniformly estimate the fundamental side frequency along the area that we're interested in. And in particular, we use the Krieging with a trend approach. Generally, spatial measurements show a trend, and by combining Krieging with a trend, we can achieve better results. So first, we conduct, again, many HRV measurements that are spatially distributed, and I want to emphasize that these measurements are done on the ground surface, as shown here. And then we first want to estimate the trend or a smooth trend in the measurements. So we apply a convolution between the measurements and a Gaussian kernel, which simply assigns weight based on distance. So think of this kind of a moving window average of the measurements over this area of interest, and thus we get a smooth trend of the data. However, this trend does not capture all the information in the data. For example, if we look at this corner, 
the measurement which shown using this dot has a slightly higher fundamental side frequency than that estimated by the trend which is shown in this grid. So if we subtract the trend from the measurements, we get the residuals at the measurement location. So this is the difference between the estimated trend so far and the actual measurements at these locations. So we have the trend on uniform map and we have the residuals on these specific locations. So our goal is to again estimate the residuals on a uniform map and add it back to the trend to achieve a better fundamental SOT frequency map. And for this purpose, we use Krieging, which has the benefit of extracting directionality in the data. Because this is a geological property, the fundamental SOT frequency, we know that it's influenced by natural phenomena that generally occur along different azimuths or directions. And by using Krieging, we can get this major direction of spatial continuity in the data and estimate the residual on a uniform map and then add it back to the trend. And once we add these two maps together, we get a better estimated fundamental side frequency that looks somewhat similar to the trend, but that captures the measurements better. For example, you can compare this corner over here to the final result. It matches with the actual measurements better. So we did the H overview measurements. We did Krieging to estimate a uniform map of the fundamental side frequency. And the third step is to use a single measured shear wave velocity profile down to bedrock and to modify it to match every fundamental side frequency in our grid. So first, we're going to associate this measured VS profile. And let's look at a simplified example with a single soil layer over bedrock. We're going to associate this VS profile with a fundamental side frequency from H over V measurements, and we're going to label it F0, H over V, VS. So this represents the VS profile. Think of it as an H over V measurement that was done just next to where the VS profile was measured. And our goal is to modify this VS profile to change its fundamental side frequency to match every cell in our grid, which has, which might have a different fundamental side frequency value. And if you look at the equation that relates the fundamental side frequency to the average shear wave velocity and the soil thickness, one option is to simply scale the shear wave velocity, the average shear wave velocity of the soil, while keeping the thickness constant, h constant. And here I defined a scaling factor s, which is simply the ratio of the, the original F0 of the VS profile to the target F0 value. So if we calculate the scaling factor and apply it on the VS value, the fundamental side frequency of this new VS profile will match our target. Another option is to keep VS constant and only scale the thickness. In this case, S becomes applied to H and we achieve the same fundamental side frequency. And third, well, we can scale both. So a combination of changing the shear wave velocity and the bedrock depth can also achieve the fundamental side frequency. And for this third option, we actually have an infinite possibilities of changing Vs and thickness that could give us the same fundamental side frequency. So this problem of modifying a Vs profile to match a fundamental side frequency 
is ill-posed and non-unique with infinite possibilities. And we wanted to select an approach that is practical, but also most appropriate for the purpose that we want to use it for, and that is site response. So looking back at the first option of scaling VS only, we know that the shear wave, the shear wave velocity for soil typically falls within a well-accepted range of values. And thus, by blindly scaling the VS value only, we might end up with unrealistic shear wave velocity values for the soil layers. So we decided not to apply this first approach. And then looking at the second approach, based on measurements we've done at different sites, we've seen that this is generally the major contributor to changes in the fundamental side of frequency. So changing the bedrock depth has been the major contributor to changes in the fundamental side frequency. And lastly, the third approach, while in my opinion is the one that best represents what's going on, there's likely changes in the average shear velocity as well as changes in the bedrock depth that are contributing to the different fundamental side frequency values. There were just so many possibilities and we didn't want to account for that uncertainty to begin with. So we decided to go with the second approach and see how does that affect our results and based on that revise the approach if needed at specific sites. So we decided to only scale the bedrock depth to achieve the different fundamental side frequency values. So let me recap the steps of the approach so far. So we had our fundamental side of frequency measurements across the site. We did a Krieging to estimate them on a uniform map. Then we're going to use a single accurately measured shear wave velocity profile down to bedrock at a known location. So this black triangle over here and we're going to modify or scale this VS profile to match the fundamental side frequency of every cell in our grid of the uniform map. First, we're going to associate this VS profile with a fundamental side frequency value, which is simply the nearest H over V measurement to the location of the VS profile. And then we're going to calculate these scaling factors. These kind of tell us how much we want to scale or modify the VS profile to achieve different fundamental side frequency values. And this is simple equation of dividing this value that represents the VS profile by the fundamental side frequency of every cell in our grid. So we divide this constant by this map and we get a new map of the scaling factor. For example, near the VS profile, the scaling factor will be approximately one, implying that minimal changes to the measured VS profile are needed to match the fundamental side frequency of these cells. But as we go further, the scaling factor will deviate away from one, implying that more changes and more scaling is needed to achieve these different fundamental side frequency values. So the last step of developing the pseudo 3D VS model is to simply multiply the layer thicknesses of the measured VS profile by the scaling factor for every cell in our grid. So for every cell, we have a constant scaling factor. We simply multiply the depth of the VS profile by the scaling factor, and we get a pseudo 3D VS model. We can view this pseudo 3D VS model by stacking all scaled 1D VS profile in 1D. So Shown in black is the measured VS profile, and then all of these are the individual scaled VS profiles at every cell in our grid, and they are color-coded by the fundamental side frequency of the cells. For example, if we look at these blue cells over here, 
this had a scaling factor less than one. So we multiplied the depth or the thicknesses of the VS profile by a number less than one. So it's kind of shrinking the VS profile. And you can see that these cells have a shell or bedrock as opposed to these red cells, which had a scaling factor greater than one. So when we multiplied a number greater than one by the thicknesses, we kind of extended the VS profile and we got a deeper bedrock as shown here. And if we put each one of these 1D VS profiles at the respective spatial location, we can plot 2D VS cross-sections, for example, AA prime going from deeper to shallower bedrock. And we can actually view these 2D cross-sections in 3D, but in reality, we have a full three-dimensional model of this area. So this work has been summarized in two companion papers. The first paper introduces the model, so it's the model development, and the second paper implements this model in simple 1D analyses, and I'll show results from that in a minute. But let's first look at the application of this approach at Treasure Island. So again, back to our H over V measurements across Treasure Island. First, we estimate a uniform map of the fundamental side of frequency using creaking as shown here. And then we use the single measured VS profile, which was measured in the download array, as shown here in green, and we scale it to match the different cells in our grid. Remember, Irabuena Island is located over here in this corner, and we said that we expect shallower bedrock in this area, and if we look at these scaled VS profiles, we can actually see that we are predicting shallower bedrock as well. And if we put again each one of these 1D VS profiles in the respective spatial location, we can plot two-dimensional shear wave velocity cross-sections. For example, AA prime, which goes into Irabuena Island, you can see this shallower bedrock that's creeping slowly upward, as opposed to cross-section BB prime, which shows minimal variability. But in reality, we have a full three-dimensional shear wave velocity. And we would argue that this is probably one of the few, if not the only three-dimensional model with engineering properties down to bedrock and over such a large scale at a down array and the whole world. So before implementing this model in more complex analyses, we decided first, let's just implement it in more simplified 1D analyses and see the output of the results. So one approach that's commonly used to account for spatial variability is to kind of average the results from many individual 1DVS profiles. So you would perform, you'd get a 1D theoretical transfer function for every 1DVS profile, and then you will combine the transfer functions to get a mean transfer function as shown here. So we did exactly the same thing, but we used the individual scaled VS profiles over the full area. Remember, Every cell has a 1DVS profile, so we can perform an idealized 1D analysis for every cell in our grid and get a 1D theoretical transfer function for every cell in our grid. And the results are shown here using the gray and blue colors. And then as a simplified approach, an approximate approach to account for spatial variability, we can simply take the mean of these individual transfer functions as shown in red over here. And you can see that when we do that, the amplitudes are in better agreement with the empirical transfer function. And we also start to capture this secondary peak. However, although this method is kind of capturing the mean 
theoretical transfer function and the empirical transfer function, well, I would argue that this is an approach that takes liberty with physics. Even if we are capturing the empirical transfer function using the mean, we are not capturing the true physics of the problem and of what's happening. And we don't have any guidelines as to how big the area is. We can really go even further and average more 1DVS profiles. There are no guidelines that tell us, well, you should go this far when combining 1D theoretical transfer functions. So next, we wanted to implement a more physics-based approach, and that is implementing this in multidimensional side response analysis, which is the third part of my presentation. So in the third part, we perform 2D side response analyses using the 3D model that was developed at Treasure Island to better assess our hypothesis of how large is the spatial area influencing seismic site response. So I will focus on 2D analyses first, and I'll say a few things about the 3D analysis toward the end of my presentation. We have a 3D model, so why aren't we doing 3D analyses? I'll say a few more words about that towards the end. So this paper recently got published in which we shared the insights that have been gained regarding the spatial area influencing site response at Treasure Island from 2D analyses. We started again with an idealized 1D analysis at this location, and then we gradually increased the area to see how far do we need to go in our cross-section, how much spatial variability do we need to include to most accurately match the empirical transfer function at the downhill array. And I'm going to show results for all these cross-sections next. Just a few words about our numerical analyses. We did all of our numerical analyses using a new numerical software that's being developed at Caltech called Seismo VLAB. And we did these analyses using high performance computing resources on the Texas Advanced Computing Center. In terms of boundary conditions, we are using free field boundary conditions, but we're also extending our boundaries. So this is the actual cross section with the spatial variability, but we're extending both boundaries to further minimize any boundary effects. And this is just a zoomed in of this portion of the model where you can see the individual elements and the spatial variability. We're performing, I just want to emphasize a few things. We're performing linear viscoelastic analyses. We're not accounting yet for soil nonlinearity. And also our input motion for the numerical analysis is a simple Ricker wavelet at the base, as shown here. In terms of damping, we are using full rail damping with a target damping ratio of 0.75% to match the average material damping. It's common to increase damping to account for spatial variability, but our goal was we wanted to match the material damping commonly measured, let's say, in a lab setting and assess whether accounting for actual spatial variability can capture the scattering that's present in the recorded field scale ground motions. So let's go back to the idealized 1D analysis and see results from that and build on it to show results for the cross sections with the spatial variability. So 
If we just take a 1D VS profile and idealize a 2D cross-section based on a single measured VS profile as shown here, and then we have our input Ricker wavelet at the base and we perform a numerical simulation, this is the simulated motion at the ground surface. We can clearly see side effects in terms of differences in frequency content, duration, and amplitude at the surface. And because this is a numerical simulation, we can actually record the output at all the surface nodes and thus plot them next to each other. So rotate this and just plot them where time becomes on the y-axis. And we see that at every single surface node, that waveform is exactly the same because this is an idealized 1D model. Next, let's look at results with spatial variability. And I'm going to show results from two cross-sections, and then I'll show results from all the four cross-sections I showed earlier. So the first one extends from minus 600 meters to 600 meters, with our downward array being the center at 0, 0. So this is a cross-section with a spatial variability across more than one kilometer of the island. And you can see the cross-section over here. And again, these are simply the extended boundaries to minimize boundary effects. So if we simulate this 2D cross-section, these are the waveforms. We start to see some variability, but it's a big part of it, similar to a simple idealized 1D analysis. We don't see significant changes from the previous slide. Now let's look at simulations with the full cross-section, which again includes this sloping bedrock that's shallower and shallower as we get closer to your Babuena Island. So if you look at the waveforms of this cross-section, we start to see more significant differences in the waveform. And in particular, you see this train of waves that's traveling from right to left with time. And we believe that simply the waves are going up, hitting this inclined bedrock, and then going like this, and then traveling across the surface from right to left. And let's look at an actual animation of the results, and that would be more evident. So I'm going to show an animation of the side response or of the earthquakes at these two cross-sections. And here you go. You see the first few seconds are similar, and then you start to see these strong waves traveling from right to left for this full cross-section, as opposed to a much more simplified response for this cross-section. This is the simulation again. See these strong waves traveling from right to left, as opposed to a much more simplified response in this case. So based on these theoretical assessments, we can say that there is a difference based on the spatial area that we're incorporating in our model. And remember, this wasn't a small cross-section. This was more than one kilometer of spatial variability on the island. But only when we went as far as almost one kilometer in each direction that we started to see more differences. So this is telling us, theoretically, we expect that this full area is influencing the side response but we can actually validate our results and compare these predictions to the recorded earthquake motions at the downward array. So I'm gonna go back to showing the transfer functions. Again, shown in black is the empirical transfer function based on the actual recorded earthquake ground motions at Treasure Island, so at the surface and at the bedrock. And shown in green is the idealized transfer function, theoretical transfer function, based on a single 1D VS profile. Incorporate minimal spatial variability over an area of approximately minus 100 to 100 meters, and we get the transfer function in this case. We see that the amplitudes are starting 
to reduced and in better agreement with the empirical transfer function due to wave scattering resulting from the spatial variability across this incorporated cross section, but we're still under predicting this secondary amplification peak. Let's go even further. Now minus 300 to 300 meters cross section. Now the amplitudes are very well predicted. We're within plus to minus one standard deviation from the empirical transfer function, which is great, but we're still not predicting the width of the fundamental mode and not capturing this secondary amplification peak. Let's go even further. Now minus 600 to 600 meters. Not a huge difference in the transfer function. We're still doing a great job with the amplitudes, but not capturing the secondary amplification peak. But look what happens when we incorporate the full cross section, which again includes this sloping bedrock. Now the results shown in dark blue, you can see we're still doing a good job with the amplitudes, but we're starting to capture as well this secondary amplification peak. And if you look at the acceleration records, we have these stronger reverberations later on, which are caused by this shallower bedrock approximately one kilometer away. We have to acknowledge that this prediction is not perfect, but at least we're starting to see the secondary amplification peak. And I want to remind you that this is from 2D analyses only. We're hoping that by performing 3D analysis where we capture the full scale variability in all directions, we might be able to better capture this secondary amplification peak. And also I want to emphasize one other thing, and that is the 1D prediction didn't do a bad job. And while this peak might not be of significant importance at this particular site, I believe we are gaining insights at the site that might be very important at more complex sites. And our goal is to investigate these more complex sites in the near future. So back to the question of how large is the spatial area influencing seismic site response? So in the article that recently got published, we argue that these results systematically highlight the large lateral extent that influences seismic site response, even at a site that is commonly considered to be, again, the perfect example of a one-dimensional site with minimal spatial variability. And thus, really moving our profession forward requires from us to develop more of these large-scale subsurface models in practical ways to better test and accurately predict multidimensional site response. In our article, we test the lateral extent, but we also examine the azimuthal variability of the seismic site response. So the lateral extent was just one part of the study. And if you look at the model again, this is just a single azimuthal cross-section from our 3D model. And in fact, we can select different cross-sections at different azimuths of the model and look at the predicted response from these cross-sections and investigate whether there is azimuthal variability in the site response predictions. Who said that we should be investigating this cross-section rather than one in the y direction? So I'm just going to show the results over here and the results are grouped in two different groups. The first one are azimuths in kind of the east-west direction across the island, which as you can see from the fundamental side frequency map, have minimal variability in the fundamental side frequency and thus their transfer functions are somewhat similar. If you look at the other group of the azimuths, in which these are cross-sections in the north-south direction, which go into this sloping bedrock near Babuena Island, 
we start to see a much more complex response, both in terms of the acceleration at the ground surface and in terms of the transfer functions. You start to see many of these secondary amplification peaks at different frequencies. And this really emphasizes that there are differences based on the cross-section azimuth when it comes to 2D analysis. And thus, really, if you want to overcome this azimuthal variability, you might have to go with a full three-dimensional analysis. Otherwise, it's hard to decide, well, which cross-section, which 2D cross-section best resembles the actual site response at our site. So why didn't I show results for 3D analysis, although we have a full 3D model? Really, the complexity of going from 1D to 2D to 3D has been a challenge when we're trying to implement these analyses and resolve specially higher frequencies. Let's talk about the time that it takes for the different analyses. For a single 1D analysis, it took us nearly two seconds, just super fast to do a 1D analysis. For the 2D analysis that we performed, it took around 13 minutes. These analyses have approximately 25,000 elements, five meter by five meter elements. We're running them on a single node, single core, so we're not doing any parallelization. It's running and taking 13 minutes, which is okay. But when it comes to the full 3D model, we've been doing some analyses and it's just taking a tremendous amount of time. For a single 3D analysis, it took us 27 hours on 192 cores as compared to 13 minutes on a single core for a 2D analysis. And one other thing I want to emphasize is that for the 2D analysis, I said we're extending the boundaries to minimize boundary effects. This analysis for 3D took 27 hours without any extension of the boundaries. Extending the boundaries would add millions more element and will just be unreasonable to run it at all. So I think there's much more work that needs to be done when it comes to 3D analyses, especially using elements that allow us to resolve higher frequencies. And this really motivates us to pursue a study that I'm currently leading. And the title of the study is Ground Truthing Multidimensional Site Response Analyses. So this is an ongoing study with collaborators from research and industry to ground truth multidimensional site response using different commercial and open source software, such as OpenSeas, the software we've been using, SeismoVLab, Flack, and Alistina. And every different team is kind of responsible for the implementation of one of these softwares. And these are the different groups that are involved in the study. And really, the motivation that um, we took to undergo the study was there is a lack of well-documented and openly accessible case histories. When we were trying to do multidimensional site response, we didn't find any well-documented case history on how to test your boundary conditions, how to assess the reliability of your results. And we wanted to provide a workflow that could serve as a benchmark for practitioners and researchers to calibrate their own analyses and achieve more reliable seismic hazard assessment and risk mitigation. So we want to constructively compare different modeling strategies, boundary conditions, computational time, see the differences if we run the same model on different software, how long does it take it on these different software? And lastly, ground truthing of these results against recorded ground motions at borehole arrays. Sites. And we're actually convening a session and SSA, in the upcoming SSA, which 
styled ground truthing multidimensional site response analyses at Burhari site in which each team will discuss the modeling strategies that they've been using, some of the complexities, and then we'll have a collective presentation that's going to compare the results across the different teams and the different software. And we also hope to publish the results as a data set on Design Safe, where we share all our input files or our analysis so that anyone can really implement them and use them as a benchmark. And this is just an example of some of the cases we start from your basic dynamics problem with a single column, single layer, and gradually add complexity until we reach a 2D cross-section at Treasure Island with spatial variability. And again, each one of these cases is implemented on a different software. And some of these cases also include investigating different boundary conditions, different damming formulations, different element sizes, and assessing how the different software compare in terms of their numerical results, but also their computational accuracy for the same problem. And this is just an example of some of the results we've been getting for that 2D cross-section at Treasure Island. So that would be the last most complex case so far for that project. And you can see results from Sasmo VLAB, OpenSea's Alistar, and a flag. And we're seeing an overall good agreement, but that took really some efforts and a lot of communication so that we can get to the same results. And while we can achieve the same numerical results, which is promising, the comparison of the computational time across the different software has been very interesting. And we're trying to understand the differences for this computational time across the different software. In terms of other future work, uh, I've only shown results at one site in this presentation, but I've also been involved in another site, which is the Delaney Park down area in Anchorage, Alaska. We actually have HLRE measurements at that site, and we do have a 3D model. However, we haven't done any numerical analyses yet. We did recently more HRV measurements, and we're updating our 3D model there while trying to account for differences in spatial elevation as well in the 3D model. And also two other sites, Garner Valley, this is the site Alan Young has helped us collect data there, and also another site, which is Borrego Valley. We have data at all of these sites, but we haven't developed the 3D model at these two sites yet. We're lacking some H overview measurements, not at Garner Valley, but at Borrego Valley. And we hope to achieve these in the near future. So to conclude, I wanted to discuss things in terms of what we know so far versus what we would like to know moving forward. We believe that the H over V statistical approach appears to improve the site predictions at specific sites, and the results so far systematically highlight the large lateral extent that influences site response, which we saw could extend up to one kilometer at Treasure Island even though this is a site that's commonly believed to be a simple one-dimensional site. And this just emphasizes the need again to develop more of these site-specific subsurface models over large areas to better understand and accurately model multidimensional seismic site response. Moving forward, what would we like to know? How will this approach perform at more complex sites in which maybe some of its assumptions might not hold as currently implemented. What can we do to modify the assumptions to better account for more complex sites? How do the results from the different software compare numerically and computationally for the same cross-section, which current software for numerical modeling is proving to be the most computationally efficient, which we could use to more efficiently perform three-dimensional analyses? 
And lastly, well, will 3D analysis better match observations compared to the 2D cross-sections? Is it worth the complexity of going from 2D to 3D, or will the differences be minimal? And also, can we reasonably resolve higher frequencies? When I showed the transfer functions, I was limiting my plots to nearly 5 hertz, but can we resolve higher frequencies by using smaller elements? And how will that affect the computational runtime of the numerical analyses? And while this is exciting and it's nice to develop these larger scale models, we have to acknowledge that it might not, it will not be possible to do that at most sites. Thus, thinking of the longer term, can we develop more regional scale H over V spatial maps and use them in surrogate models to predict side effects when more advanced analyses are not feasible? Can we simply rely on H over V maps and use the spatial variability of HRV at a site to better understand and estimate complex side effects when it's not feasible to develop these larger scale 3D models and to perform these numerical analyses. With that, I'd like to acknowledge the funding that we've received to perform this research, particularly the funding from Pacific Gas and Electric, which was used to collect the data at Treasure Island. And really when we did this uh, study first, like we had an idea of wanting to investigate the spatial area, but we didn't expect that we'll get such outcome from a single case study investigation at Treasure Island. Also, I want to acknowledge the Seismo VLAB team at Caltech, which has been tremendous. And lastly, the Texas Advanced Computing Center and also my co-authors in the different projects. And this is just a reference of the different articles that I mentioned throughout my presentation. Thank you, everyone. I'm happy to answer any questions. Okay, thank you, Mohammed. Really interesting talk. Um, if you have any questions, uh, you can raise your hand or you could put it in the chat. Um, I'll ask a question, actually. Uh, so, in your simulations, these are these 2D simulations. So, how do you how do you define the source on those? Those. So, those, we're as I mentioned before, we're kind of isolating the source path and side effects. So we're only inputting um, ground motion at the bedrock level. Right. So this is like a plane a plane wave coming yes. in from the bottom. Okay. Yeah. So if you have, uh, I guess what I was wondering is if um, you have a point source or some kind of direction, even a directional plane wave, can you, you'll either excite that secondary reflection or not, or, you know, there could be some, some directions where the site response is uh, excited by whatever source. In fact, I once kind of plotted the different uh, like earthquake that have been recorded at Treasure Island and like their azimuthal difference. And I could see that this secondary peak that we observed in the empirical transfer function only appears for earthquakes originating from a certain azimuth. Right. So there's definitely path and source effects that could excite this differently. Right, but right. so far we're not accounting for this. We're assuming right. getting perfectly vertical input motion at the base. Well, that would be something interesting. I think we need to go to the 3D models too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, Alan, do you have a question? Um, I, I did. Uh, you effectively um, have asked Mohammed, the questions that I wanted to ask him. Uh, <laughs> Mohammed, if you if you recall, um, the last time you gave a talk, I broached the same question to you because you're assuming source and path uh, is 
frankly not relevant in this case. And I was wondering if you have developed further thoughts in terms of these effects, because um, uh, from, from my perspective at the site, I'm always looking at data from the perspective of the site. So for me, decoupling the path and the site doesn't make any sense. Uh, of course, you know there are source dynamics that are very complex, and it's currently beyond my horizon. But I was wondering what you think, what your thoughts are. And I know you've alluded to, um, in, in your last comment to Evan about um, perhaps you know when you uh, vary the source, you can see some changes in the amplitudes, maybe if not the frequency itself. And so. Um, in a very convoluted roundabout way, I'd like you to comment about the source and path effects that are decoupled from the site and uh, earthquake data versus noise data, which um, I don't think you emphasize as much in the early parts of your talk in terms of what you use. And, and by the way, really nice talk. Thank you. Thank Bravo. You. Thank you. In terms of side and source and path effects, I would admit that hasn't been an area we investigated as engineers <laughs> we would generally just isolate that simply because we lack significant characterization from the source to the site and along the path and i imagine if we wanted to account for this in our numerical analysis we'll have to combine more deeper characterizations of the bedrock and then with this near surface characterization near the surface. And also, there are a lot of factors that affect that at this particular site. The bay itself might kind of resonate in some way at the Treasure Island downhill rate, given that this is in kind of a bay surrounded by water. It's just too complex. And thus, the question then becomes is it worth it? At this particular site, I'm not sure, given that still when isolating um, the source, the path and the site, we're achieving a reasonable prediction. Is it worth it to try to account for that complexity, especially considering the significant lack of information when trying to combine these effects? But I definitely imagine that this would be more significant at other sites. For example, Borrego Valley site, we just see extreme variability in the individual transfer functions of earthogram motions, which we strongly believe is driven by side and path effects. We didn't see that significantly as much as Treasure Island. Yes, there is variability based on from where the earthquake is coming, but it wasn't so significant such that isolating the responses was causing us significant errors in the predictions. May, may I um, just reply to uh, your comment? So you, you mentioned at some point depth, right? So we're in, in um, many ways, we're looking at engineering bedrock, 760 meters per second, where really, you know, the, I, 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 it's my impression from looking at HRV that uh, Greater the the longer the window, which you have um, you have used, and Fabian Bonilla actually, and I have this sidebar going on about your your presentation, uh, that we should be looking for seismological bedrock velocities, two thousand meters per second, as a proxy for that 
you know, for the depth, because I think, you know, for the, the greater the window, the more you can get out of site response, because I think it's my impression that, you know, when you push that hard impedance layer further down, or you are able to find that that stronger contrast or, or that greater rock, you can be much more comprehensive in terms of site response. And that's, you know, that, that's going to help with all the warts and pimples that comes with 1D site response. I wonder if you agree on that. And I, I agree. And we actually have a site in which this is very applicable. So the Delaney Park Download Array site, at that site, they have what they call a glacial toe that has a shear velocity of approximately 1,000 meters per second at a depth of 60 meters. And the downhill array just extends as far as 60 meters, and we have used this depth as just our bedrock, so we truncate our model at 60 meters. But if we look at some of the H over V measurements that were recorded for approximately two hours at the site, we could see, so we're capturing this impedance contrast at approximately 60 meters, but we're also capturing a much deeper impedance contrast that probably goes to a VS of two to three kilometers per second between the glacial toll. But just the variability of that frequency that's around like 0.1 hertz and even lower than that is so much. There's a lot of variability in it. So just a question, well, for how long should you record? to capture <laughs> this, especially if it's too deep. We're expecting it's like several hundreds of meter deep at Delaney Park. At that site, I think this might be more significant than, for example, the Treasure Island. So for example, Treasure Island, we're already reaching 2.5 kilometers per second VAS at 150 meters. So I'm not sure if it's going to be possible to find a stronger impedance contrast using H over V measurements at the ground surface. And how good are your instruments, right? And I'll stop talking. I think Christine <laughs> might be next. Yeah, well, okay. So guys, we're a little bit past the hour. So let's um, thank Mohammed again and stop the recording. But he's going to hang out in the, the teams uh, for a little while and chat with us. So feel free to stick around if we didn't get to your question. But thank you, again. everyone. Yeah.